Good morning. Welcome to worship at Northminster. If you're here in person in our sanctuary or viewing this service over our YouTube channel, we're so glad that you're with us this morning. To, to acknowledge your presence, and if you're comfortable doing so, if you would sign the attendance register that you'll find there in the, the uh, hymn book holders on the inside aisle, please. In addition to the prayer concerns set forth in the insert to the order of worship, please hear this prayer concern from Kim Norman. Kim says, my neighbor is hosting an exchange student from Ukraine. Her family is safe for the moment, but it's a tense situation and she's obviously worried if she'll even have a home to return to. There's concern for her family's safety, as we all know. We pray for this young Ukrainian exchange student, her family, and all the people of Ukraine, their families and friends elsewhere in the world during this most difficult time. Please remember this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and we will have our usual Ash Wednesday service here in the sanctuary at 6 o'clock that evening. This will include the imposition of ashes, and we promise the service will no at last no longer than about 30 minutes. Uh, the last hymn uh, today, our closing hymn, is uh, hymn number 593 and not 393. So just remember it's five and not three. Uh, also, uh, Debbie will be seating you uh, for the first verse of that hymn, which will be sung by one of our choral scholars, Preston Anderson, and then you'll stand to sing the last two uh, verses of that wonderful hymn. We're, as always, thankful to our flower committee for the work they do each week in providing our beautiful floral arrangements on our communion table. And today, we're particularly thankful to Robert Crawford for his creation of this beautiful arrangement. Uh, after the service, please, and unless Joanne tells me different, please feel free, <laughs> and she's shaking her head, so please feel free to come and take some of the flowers to to brighten yours or someone else's week. And as always, please review the insert in the order of worship for other opportunities and announcements or check out our newsletter. We welcome Reverend Elijah Zayu to Northminster this morning as our pulpit guest and worship leader. Elijah is the recently named co-director of Northminster Denominational Partner, the Alliance of Baptists, assuming the position of Reverend Paula Clayton Dempsey, who retired. A graduate of Morehouse College with a BA and of the University of Chicago with an MDiv, uh, Elijah served as uh, associate pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. from 2014 until uh, 2021. He's currently writing a Ph.D. dissertation uh, is that coming along, Elijah? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on, uh, in, in African history at Howard University, and his focus is on the transatlantic slave trade and the origins of the Liberian Civil War. He's an immigrant to the United States from Liberia and West Africa, traveling with his family to escape that Civil War. Elijah grew up in Baton Rouge, in University Baptist Church there. Actually, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's the, at least the Baptist part of it. 
Coincidentally, almost 50 years ago, during the three years I was a student in law school at LSU in Baton Rouge, I was also an active member of, you guessed it, University Baptist Church. In describing Elijah, Alliance President Michael Ray Matthews said that he brings together the care of a pastor, the rigor of a scholar, and the passion of a prophet in his new role as co-director. Elijah, we welcome you to Northminster this morning. Craig, thank you for your warm and generous welcome into North Minister Church. It is my honor and privilege to be with you here on this Sunday morning. I bring greetings from your denominational partner, the Alliance of Baptists, and it brings great joy to me to get to stand in this sacred pulpit and here at this sacred church. As we begin our worship, let us tune our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to the call to worship this morning. We enter the house of God with gladness, eager for fellowship, hungry for grace, needing to hear what God's word is saying to us. Doing justice means doing the right thing for all of God's people. When is the time to do the right thing? An ancient Hebrew psalm says, Righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Let us worship God.
A reading from Letter from the Birmingham Jail, April 16, 1963. In the spring of 1963, a group of clergymen, both Christian and Jewish, published an open letter to the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. calling nonviolent demonstrations against segregation, quote, unwise and untimely, close quote. From his cell in the Birmingham jail, without benefit of a resource library or even blank paper, he composed an incredibly insightful response in his characteristically brilliant way, giving a new and more realistic lens through which to view racial justice. Please find some time to read or reread this magnificent piece of writing. Here are some excerpts. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've always reached the, almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to, quote, order, close quote, than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, quote, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, close quote, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a, quote, more convenient season, close quote. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering, bewildering than outright rejection. In a letter I received from a white brother offering similar advice, he writes, quote, all Christians know that the colored people will receive equal rights eventually, but it is possible that you are in too great a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teachings of Christ take time to come to earth, close quote. Such an attitude stems from a tragic misconception of time, from this strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. Actually, time itself is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more, I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on wheels of inevitability. It comes through tireless efforts of people willing to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that the time is always ripe to do right. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church. 
but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There could be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, but oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformists. There was a time when early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a th thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christ Christians for being, quote, disturbers of the peace, close quote, and, quote, outside agitators, close quote. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were, quote, a colony of heaven, close quote, called to obey God rather than man. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Things are different now. So often the co contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will, be, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people who, whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. Never before have I written so long a letter. I'm afraid it is much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else can one do when he is alone in a narrow jail cell other than write long letters? think long thoughts, and pray long prayers. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours in the cause of peace and brotherhood, Martin Luther King, Jr., April 16, 1963.
Friends, join me for a word of prayer. O great God of justice, and O great God of love, we gather in this sacred house this morning, carrying with us the weight of what it means to be human in the world today. God, some of us gather in this place with the heaviness of our own families. Perhaps it is a sick loved one, a broken body part, a hurting family, family that is struggling in some way. God, we're mindful of that today. We bring that before you to this sacred place. God, some of us come in here with the weight of our relationships, whether it is a colleague, a loved one, a past partner that we are no longer in relationship with. Oh, God, you are a God that can mend all that is broken. And so we come to you with those prayers as, well, God, we come to you with concerns of the world of our city, of our state, of our country, and of our world. God, we lift up, especially right now, our brothers, our sisters, our siblings in Ukraine who are suffering right now, who fear for their lives, who are living under the weight of war. God, we long for the day when we have to study war no more. God, we ask that you be their comfort, that you be their peace, that you be their hope, oh God. God, we also pray for all those across the world who are suffering, all those who are oppressed, all those who are victims of violence. For God, you know the meditations of each of our hearts. God, you know the things that we struggle with, the things that we take in our coming and our going and our waking up and our going to bed. Oh, God, you know the things deep in our heart. So, God, for those prayers, for those meditations, for those issues that we're longing for an answer for, that only you know that we can't even bring ourselves to bear right now. God, we pray. We pray for this. We pray for all of the meditations in our heart, oh God. We ask us, you bless us, and that you keep us, and that you invoke your spirit into this place, into our hearts, into our lives, and into our world. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus, the one who is the liberating one. Amen. from the Gospel of Luke. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is one of our ancient stories. Thanks be to God.
What a powerful worship service this has already been. Y'all, the choir is amazing. I love listening to you all and could listen to you all all day. Y'all are really privileged here with this choir. And honestly, y'all, the gospel has basically been preached. We have heard the words from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and we've heard words from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the letter from the Birmingham jail, that brilliant piece of writing, as we have already noted today, without notes, without access to his library, and really even his notepad. Dr. King penned much of that from memory, and one of the questions he posed in that letter is he would say that he would often drive by the churches of the South and look at how beautiful they are. And he would wonder what type of people worshipped in those churches. Those words have animated me for much of my life, and I'm grateful to be here before you. But since I was invited to preach, if you will allow me, I'll try for a little bit to preach. Good thing we're in Louisiana, because sometimes in D.C., when I'm up there, you know, people aren't used to good old Southern preaching, <laughs> where we take a little bit of our time. But since I'm back home, right, I'm sure y'all will appreciate that. Allow me to pray this brief prayer. Oh, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing unto you, oh, God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. He was adamant that he did not see race. No way he said this situation could be viewed as racist. He said, I'm the sweetest guy in the world. I don't harbor a racist bone in my body. And in fact, he said, if anybody is the racist, it's you, Elijah, for making this about race. I was stunned as we both sat across from our teacher. And the reason we were there was because there was some academic dishonesty in my free enterprise class in high school. Yes, my economics class in South Louisiana was called free enterprise. And the first semester, the whole football team took PE together. In fact, the last time I was in this part of the state was back then when my high school, Catholic high school, came to play West Monroe Rebels they were at the time. I don't know if that's still the mascot. We did lose. Um, but so the first half of the semester, the football team took PE together. The second half, the football team took this free enterprise class together. And you can begin to imagine, given the dynamics of a Southern American, South Louisiana high school football team, it was an intense last semester. So our teacher gave us a quiz one day, and he said he trusted us as student leaders to be able to take the test without being monitored. So he gave us a test, walked outside. Of course, the moment he left, the students, both black and white, started to pass answers around and cheat. And even, and for the record, I did not actually participate in any of this. I promise y'all I didn't. But a number of people did. And so after the test was graded, our teacher came back and said, the tests look a little fishy. 
And immediately, a white student threw his hands up and said, yes, there was definitely some cheating going on. And he blamed one of the black students as the ringleader. In his version of the story, he tried to stop Rob, but Rob wouldn't listen and just continued. The rest of the white students in the class agreed. It was Rob and the other black kids who cheated. I was stunned. So I raised my hand. I said, actually, almost everyone cheated. Rob didn't start this, but Chris did. And immediately, there was confusion. They were, there was anger. And Chris responded, dude, I'm smart. I don't cheat. And Rob, I mean, look at him. Doesn't he look like someone who cheats? <laughs> and so while I was stunned, you could see why I was stunned when he said he did not see race. And so we sat in our teacher's office until he got to the bottom of it. He never did. Rob was suspended. Everyone had to retake the test. And I was branded angry, and I'll never forget the words of my colorblind classmate. In her seminal work, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Color Blindness, Michelle Alexander, an attorney, former attorney with the ACLU and former law professor at Ohio State and now professor at Union Seminary and columnist for New York Times, argues that mass incarceration is metaphorically the new Jim Crow, and that color blindness holds mass incarceration together. Her work is all good, and if you haven't read it, I would strongly recommend you reading it and maybe even a Bible study around it. But here's just a portion of what she writes. Far from being a worthy goal, color blindness has proved catastrophic for African Americans. It's not an overstatement to say that the system of mass incarceration of people of color would literally have not been possible in the post-civil rights era if the nation had not fallen under a spell of color blindness. The seemingly innocent phrase, I don't care if she's black, isn't innocent at all, but a form of cruelty. It is precisely because we have not cared much about African Americans that we have allowed our criminal justice system to create a new racial undercast. She continues, the deeply flawed nature of colorblindness is that it purports to see black and brown people as raceless people who failed miserably to play by the rules that the rest of us play by. Colorblindness prevents us from seeing that blacks are severely punished for things that whites do that go a notice, like Rob and Chris in my classroom. Our blindness prevents us from seeing the racial and structural divisions that persist in our society, the segregated schools, the unequal schools, the segregated ghettos, the segregated public discourse. We have become blind to a racial caste system in our country. This was true in the late spring of 2007, and it was true in January of 2022. It was true when another one of my classmates, another one of the people who I played football with at Catholic High School was a police officer who killed Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. It was true when his whole legal defense team were my classmates who graduated the same year as me. 
true in our workplaces and in our schools. It's true in our fight over public discourse, over public education, over how to teach American history. The state of Virginia has a new governor who ran on a campaign of banning critical race theory. 30 other states in our country are trying actively to ban the teaching of black history. The Senate last month blocked voting rights on the logic that race is no longer a barrier in voting despite all of the evidence to the contrary. And right here in Louisiana, prisoners live in deplorable conditions in places like Hunt and Angola where those former plantations get up to 100 degrees inside a Louisiana summer. Our racial caste system is quite indeed here with us. And Michelle Alexander helps us to see this, and she joins Jesus right here in the Gospel of Luke. See, when we meet Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke, in the beginning of his very own ministry to his home congregation, we see what he is about. Scholars tell us that a typical Saturday service in which Jesus would have spoken would have commenced with a reading of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, 18 benedictions, a reading from the song, a prayer of blessings, and then a reading from the prophets. The synagogue attendant would have picked the scrolls, but the preacher would be free to pick whatever text they wanted. Luke emphasizes this when he said that Jesus found the place where it was written to show that Jesus was the one that picked the text. Jesus wanted to talk about that passage in Isaiah. Jesus wanted that passage in Isaiah to be the articulation of his ministry. So he picked it up. He read it saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God has sent me to proclaim release and recovery of sight to the blind. God has sent me to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim this year of the Lord's favor. Jesus was using all of those means to get his point across that God had sent him to do this thing. And initially, no one in his congregation opposed just what he's reading. But later it takes a turn. The lectionary reading doesn't cover this, but they get angry with him. During his teaching and his preaching, they try to kill him. The first of many attempts on his life. And before I go further, let me just say this. Isn't it funny how the people who probably shaped Jesus would later threaten his life for articulating his truth? Isn't it funny how the people who probably taught Jesus the scriptures, who probably reminded him of how loved he was in God's eyes, were the same people who first threatened him? There's a saying, I don't know if you've heard it, where they say a prophet isn't welcomed in his own hometown. Northminster, I urge you to be the type of church 
that remains open to the work that God calls you to do in the future. I urge you to be the type of church, the type of parents, the type of leaders who say yes to the vision and the dreams of your children, even if they differ from you. I urge you to be the type of place that affirms the vocations and the callings of those in our midst, the new interpretations of those people that you have taught. I urge you to be the people who say yes to the call that God puts on your life and on their lives. See, Jesus really is the model here. He isn't deterred by his rejection at First Church Nazareth. He knows that he has a tough word for them. He knows that liberation is not there alone. He knows that he has to reinterpret scripture to give it meaning, to give it new meaning. He adds new meaning to their imagination. He tries to challenge their parochialism and expand their theological imagination. And unfortunately for this, they seek to kill him. Jesus was saying to them in his very first sermon that I'm coming to free you, but not just you. I'm coming to free the prisoners and the orphans and the widows and those drowning in death. I'm coming to liberate Israel and Judea and Palestine and Samaria. I'm coming to liberate those whose labor is exploited and those who don't have any labor to give. I'm coming to to liberate those who have been faithful to the law and those who have been lax with the law. I'm coming to do the work that Mary sang about, that Zechariah prayed about, that John the Baptist preach about I'm coming to be about my father's business and my mother's business and my family's business Jesus was trying to set them free but they could not make enough room for the people beyond themselves they couldn't handle all of the people crowding up their space does this sound at all familiar to us Aren't some of us being held back because we refuse to expand the reaches of the gospel? Isn't it true that too many people refuse to share space in our public discourse? Isn't it true that unfortunately in history and even today that too many white folk in America are unwilling to share the space of the country? Isn't it true that too many people refuse to share the space? See, this is why I love Jesus, y'all. I feel like he knew about the limitations of his people and he knew that he needed to push them to share the space. To push them to truly see their neighbors as their neighbors, to truly see their neighbors' stories as their stories, to truly see their neighbors' liberation in their own liberation. Jesus wanted them to be able to move beyond their own pain, beyond their own lives, beyond their own limitations, beyond their own lens and see the world in someone else's shoes. Jesus needed them to see the underclass in their midst. Jesus needed them to see those who lingered and live at the bottom of society. Jesus needed them to see 
those who were suffocating, as Dr. King put it elsewhere, in an airtight cage of poverty. In a real sense, Jesus needed them to see that they were not the only people in the world, but they were one part of a very big world. And Jesus needed them to see the colors of their neighbors and the colors of their neighbors' pain and the colors of their neighbors' oppression and the color of their neighbors' suffering beyond their borders. Jesus was asking them if they could see the whole world in living color. Jesus was urging them to see the skin tones of the oppressed, to notice the faces of the marginalized, to hear the vernaculars and the language of the cries of the poor, to touch the veins of the wounded. Jesus was trying to get them to see the world as it is so they could create the world as it ought to be. North Minister, I'm going to let you go, but do you see the world as it is? Do you see your state as it is? Do you see your city, your parish as it is? Do you notice the skin tones of those who are arrested? Have you taken in the faces of those harassed by the state troopers of Louisiana? Do you hear the languages of those who cry out for mercy in the ICE detention center near us? Do you see the racial caste system in our country? Do you see all of the violence, all of the racial violence that is heaped upon some of our most disinherited children? See, these are the questions that we have to ask as a church in the tradition of Jesus. Jesus started us off on this path by choosing to begin his ministry with the gospel of Luke. The fourth chapter. All of that was so that Jesus could prove the point, could make the case, could argue the idea that the point of his coming into the world was to help people be free. And in that synagogue, one scholar argues that the reason some people could not accept Jesus's words were because they did not agree with how Jesus read the Bible. How do you read the Bible? Do you read it like Jesus? Do you read it like Michelle Alexander, do you read it like Professor James Cone? Do you read it as a way to work for the freedom of humans from bondage, economic and political, social and psychological, intellectual, spiritual and theological? Do you read it as a way to help free people from bondage? Do you see the scriptures and see the world in living color? Northminster, I'm out of here, but I want to know, do you see the world in living color? I pray that you see the world in living color. I pray that you see the skin tones of those who are marginalized and hear the vernaculars of those who are oppressed. And that you stand confidently and boldly and passionately and compassionately and committedly in the tradition of Jesus, the one who we follow and the one who starts the gospel in this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to 
preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to those in captivity, recovery of sight to those who don't see freedom to the oppressed, and to proclaim this year as the year of the Lord's favor. I pray we see the world as Jesus does. Friends, the exact same Jesus who starts his ministry in the Gospel of Luke with that emphasis on freedom for all those who are in bondage decided to close his ministry, his time, on this earth with this meal. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples. He gathered his friends. He gathered those who followed him. And said that if they wanted to remember him, that they should partake in a meal. And that this meal would represent their commitment, their covenant to one another. So he invited them to take of the same bread. And on that day, he broke the bread. And said, this bread is a representation of my body broken out of my commitment to you. Broken because of my love for you. And in that same meal, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the cup of the sign of my blood poured out for you. And that day, Jesus told his friends and told his disciples that whenever they would eat of this bread and drink of this cup, that they would do so in his memory in the tradition that he started and the tradition that he was a part of. That the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup would be in remembrance of the life, the values, the way that Jesus tried to put forth. So let us eat of this bread and drink of this cup in the tradition of Jesus, the one who is the liberator. So now join me 
for the prayer that on that night, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmony of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies. Let it resound loud as the
Friends, as we go, we are reminded that we are a global body. That what happens to our siblings, our neighbors, and one part of the world affects us. And so this special prayer and benediction has been offered for the people of Ukraine right now as they're under siege and as they too continue to work for freedom. We'll be saying this prayer together as our benediction. God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow, that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those with power over war and peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. Above all, we pray for all your precious children at risk and in fear, that you would hold and protect them. We pray in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Amen. And as we go, hear these words of benediction and blessing. May the road rise to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May God's sun shine gently upon your faces and may God's rain fall gently upon your fields. And may God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, may God, the God of the Exodus, may God, the God of our weary years and our silent tears, may that God hold you in the palm of her hands. Go in peace to love, serve, and experience God's liberation in the world. Amen.